The views and opinions expressed by the following program are those of the host, guest, and callers, and are not necessarily those of this station or the Webster Rock Hill Ministries, its management, or other host or underwriting sponsors. Programs presented on KWRHLP are for educational and entertainment purposes only. Welcome back to In Tune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. Ellie, we have a very interesting guest coming on next. We always have very interesting guests. I actually believe that you probably do have the best guest ever. Wow. I've been so impressed with the quality and the caliber of your guest. Just like the disclaimer says, you know, that this is for educational and entertainment purposes, we are fulfilling both bills. That's correct. And we are going to be doing that with our next guest. Our next guest is Anthony Good. Anthony is an, is an artist. He lives in Massachusetts. Welcome, Anthony, to Intune. Hello. How are you doing today? Hey, pretty good. Anthony, we are uh, glad to have you on. As I've looked at your work over the last 18 months, and we talked uh, yesterday about your work, and I've, I've seen you know, multiple kinds of uh, murals that you've done and, and artwork of uh, farm scenes. Just wanted you to give us a little bit of background about your style. And I know that you have employed the Venetian technique of oil painting, and I wanted to get into that a little bit, talk about some stylistic things, how you approach your paintings, how you approach thinking about what you want to see on the canvas. If you could get into a little bit of background of that, and I'll just let you uh, run with that. All right. Yes, well, uh, if the viewers don't know, my grandfather was Thomas Hart Benton, and so I take his uh, middle name as Anthony Benton Good, where you can actually look at my, uh, find my work online under www.anthonybentongood.com. So I started drawing at a very early age, uh, and of course was encouraged, uh, you know, encouraged in art on every level. Uh, watching my grandfather work in the studio when I was a little little boy. And so it was, that was always an inspiration for me. And uh, growing up, I, I was homeschooled and grew up in a commune, actually a hippie commune <laughs> back in the 60s, which is uh, still in existence today. I don't live in it, of course, but uh, kind of growing up in that kind of an environment. You know, music and art was a very big part of our life then, so it was very greatly encouraged. And uh, long story short, when the uh, time came to go to college, instead of uh, taking a lot of academic courses, I went to an art college uh, in Boston. And uh, the rest is history. Uh, I was encouraged by my instructors to uh, start painting as soon as I got out, and I've been at it ever since. So when you started... Making a home for myself. Yeah, making a home and a name for myself, actually, in the Midwest, in uh, in Kansas, where I, I'm still a resident, and uh, I still have a studio and do most of my work out there. When you started drawing as a youngster, was that something that you were encouraged from your family, or is it something that you developed when you were in the commune, or how did that happen? Uh, I was just... I was just always drawing. I, I enjoyed it, and I enjoyed, uh, you know, basically doing the best I could to uh, draw as realistically as I could. So basically create the uh, a three-dimensional or scene on a two-dimensional page. And when I started adding uh, color and using paint, it wasn't, uh, it was many, many years later, uh, once I got into school, I actually took the Venetian techniques, just a fancy term for starting in black and white and then adding color on top of it, and then uh, creating your your um, 
the final piece through a series of glazes, um, which is, it's just a process, which um, I like to do, and, and I've kind of modified it over the years, uh, but it's an old stand, standard technique uh, done by the Italian Renaissance painters. And the process also involves making the gesso and stretching the good canvas and all that, which I do to uh, ensure the longevity of my own works uh, and make sure that they're going to be around for many, many years. And so my murals are done in the same vein, in the same way. Um, oils on canvas that can be uh, created in the studio or and then uh, rolled up and installed uh, anywhere in the world, really. Anywhere I can get an eight-foot... Uh, a panel um, through an elevator shaft or up a flight of stairs. I've done done that technique in my mural work uh, many, you know, for many years now. And that I was reading about that the murals and how you take them apart and you've devised some kind of framing to make sure that when they're put up they can stay stretched and then you can take them down and roll them up and move them if you wanted to. Is that correct or maybe I'm incorrect in yeah, my thinking on that? Yeah, it is correct and um, a lot of. Uh, you know, a lot of skeptics who have seen the process happen uh, wondered if the paint might crack. Um, and I said, well, you just have to roll it up the right way uh, with the paint side out. I said, people have been uh, carving, um, art deeds have been carving uh, canvases out of panels in museums for generations and uh, successfully moving them around in that very, very same manner. Now, that Venetian technique that you talked about, where you talked about a black and white, kind of a monochromatic kind of uh, system, and then colors employed on top of that in layers. I was, I was reading about that a little bit, that color was very, very important in, that, in the technique, and kind of uh, it gave the canvas life. Can you illuminate, not, not making a play on the words there, can you illuminate that for us? Right. You know, I was looking at that, it, too, and I wanted to ask that same question. How do you make it look so real? Well, that's that's the that's the key um, right there, and and that's a good it's a good choice of words in terms of illumination, because um, it's really a trick of the trade, but it's the thickness of the paint as well as the layering of it that gives it uh, that gives the light uh, a realistic quality in on a canvas, and that's always been one of my main focuses, no matter what I'm painting, is light. I feel that uh, in the in the um, creation of light on the canvas that really conveys the emotion of what the piece is about, and that also makes the viewer connect to the piece. It's really through the light more than, uh, more than the form. And so that's, that's kind of been my style. Also, one of the things I noticed, I noticed, too, that when you're drawing, I mean, when you're painting, that the clothes that the people have on are actually very form-fitting. You know, the, the dresses of the women kind of hug their buttocks, and, you know, the guys, you can see kind of a little wrinkle here or there. You know, you make the clothing really, you know, become the thing that stands out as well. Well, that's, um, I mean, it's, it's again, that was, I take take that from uh, lessons of the old masters where you can, uh, you should be able to feel the human form underneath the cloth or underneath the material. And so oftentimes I'd start with the, uh, basically, um, start with the form, start with the human form, and then add the clothes on top of it, and then work the, work the layering in and work the folds in so that it doesn't hide the figure, but actually um, you can still feel it and see that there's a, a living thing underneath this, this piece of cloth. 
I, I like the statement you have, knowing the figure from the skeletal structure outward makes the difference between drawing what you see accurately or merely, merely copying the form. And that's what it looks yeah. like to me because, you know, and not everybody is that picture-perfect model body. You have people that, you know, have uh, big arms or, or a bigger head or, you know, kind of big butts and <laughs> things like that. And you capture all that so that it becomes very identifiable. You know, I can look and go, yeah, you know, I know a, I know a girl that looks like that. Um, that's what I feel. And I actually feel the fun. I feel the action and the activity when I look at your at your work. Yeah, well, it's true. And often enough, most of the characters, especially in my murals, were uh, um, drawn from life, from from people I knew, unless it was a historical figure. And then, of course, I'm, I'm looking at the uh, historical photos and things, you know, things like that. But uh, a lot of the supporting characters were people that, um, you know, that I knew and uh, just drew them from life and put them in the painting. So. so talk to us about how you start your drawings, how you start your, your paintings. And I'm not really talking about the murals right now. That's going to be a separate conversation, but I'm, t- I'm talking mainly about some of the scenes that you have out in Kansas, uh, the beautiful wheat fields, the, the corn fields, some of the trucks going down a, a, a lone road by themselves with a storm out in the background. You know, very vibrant, really gives you a, a sense of an impending doom that's getting ready to happen, especially if you're familiar with being out in Kansas, which I am, having lived out there for six years, and my wife being from Kansas, knowing that these storms all of a sudden can brew up, boom, and let it, let it rip. How do you start that uh, when you take the canvas? Do you do you sketch something out? Do you have some preliminary sketches, or do you just go right to it to the canvas? I'll often sketch it out um, uh, once the I stretch my canvas, and basically sometimes it's the size of the canvas which um, will indicate what the scene will be. Um, you know, and so that's that's a very important part of the of the process of putting a painting together is that the scenery has to match the, the actual size. Um, there's on smaller canvases you can you can do less. Uh, whereas the larger ones, they can be simple landscapes, or they could there have some simplicity, you know, to the structure of them. But it's it's a formula basically. The size of the canvas has to match the scene. And living in Kansas, um, I moved out there. Well, I, my grandfather got a farm in 1971 out there, and so I was starting to go out there to visit uh, ever since. I was uh, 12 years old, and I always loved the place. Um, and then when I got out out of art school and went back there, it just everything everywhere I looked, it was just like, oh man, I, I just don't know where to start painting. It was just one <laughs> scene after another. That I just wanted to try and capture. It's like being being in a and candy store, right? Yeah, and it's what's so interesting about it is, I mean, a lot of people, especially um, on the East Coast, uh, view Kansas is uh, just being big flats space. Their, their only idea of it was perhaps maybe driving to Denver on I-70, which uh, is not a very pretty drive. <laughs> but um, <clears throat> what's wonderful about it and why I continue to paint out there is the simplicity of the landscape and the simplicity of of the scenery that um, just lends itself to, to any canvas. And um, much, much more than uh, perhaps the woodland areas uh, on the East Coast, as well as just the uh, the clutter and the the detail of you just can't get those long vistas and those deep spaces until you really cross the Missouri River. I think once you get 
Wisconsin, Missouri, going across the country, things really open up. You know, and, and that's and, that's yeah, true. Cause no, no exception. Look, mm-hmm. Looking at, at the work, it's it, it seems like less is more. There's there's not a lot there. You you do have on on the scenes uh, there are you know, streams or trees or clouds or rolling hills, but you're taking in the serenity of the scene, which when you look at something like that, it's very calming. It's very it, uh, to me it's it's relaxing. Uh, which being out in the country, if you live in a city, being out in the country, you're supposed to you know slow down, you know put your phone down, enjoy. The, the weather, enjoy the outside, enjoy the sun, get get your hands dirty and things like that. Those are some some senses that are evoked when I look at your work. Yeah, well, I hope so. Um, I definitely like to capture that, as well as I really also enjoy the, uh, the weather out there and um, the intensity of the storms that we get. And I think that it's just fascinating. And there's been there's been many times where I've, I've actually seen seen skies and and sketch the clouds and taking pictures of them. And when you, if I, I would say, you know, if I painted this, people would think that this is a fantastic uh, landscape, that I made it up, that the, uh, these clouds are just not real. And sometimes I can't do it. It's like, no, I, I can't paint it that way. No one will ever believe that this, is, that this is real. Do you ever take photographs of those things when you see them, or are you just relying on memory in your sketches? Um, you know, back in the day, I used to have an old Canon camera, which, you, you know, you took the the old role to film, and I would take uh, uh, reference sketches, so I would reference photos of different things, and then have them printed out, and uh, I would have little booklets of my reference photos that I could look at and kind of glean ideas from, or kind of use a detail from here, or a little detail from there. Now with cell phones and the cameras that they've got on, the cell phone I have, it's like, I, actually, I chose it because of the camera, and that's a wonderful tool right now that um, any artist is probably using, we can take many, many more pictures and use those as reference. And the difference is if I could take 100 pictures and, and use maybe one part of one or just a, a little detail from here or there, but uh, the, the amount of material that I have to use for a reference is just uh, amazing. It's great. Whereas if I was to just, just rely on my sketching, um, I could maybe make maybe maybe two or three sketches in the same amount of time. But um, one of the things I continue to do, though, is I don't like the uh, the perspective of the camera lens. It's different than the eye sees. And so if I see something, I might take some pictures of it, but then I'll always make a sketch, even if it's just a very rough, quick one, as, as uh, for what the eye is looking at. And, you know, the shape of things, the shape of the landscape, uh, the perspective of the human eye rather than the lens. So that's that's still something I employ. It's just I'll drag my sketchbook around as well as taking pictures. And if I really see something I really like, I'll make a more detailed sketch than just a rough one. But uh, oftentimes looking at my sketchbooks, I won't even show anybody because the sketches are so rough. To explain that a little bit more, expand on that, the difference between what you see in a picture and why you like the human eye. What what differences, as you explained to our listeners, would would you be looking at? Well, looking when you if um, the the best example of that is oftentimes when you uh, you take a picture of say a, a, a landscape that has a uh, has a good vista, so you're looking you know you're looking twenty miles or something, and if you look at that photograph, the back you know the very your horizon line is so far away that it's in the picture that you can't even hardly uh, see what's there. 
But when you're standing there and you're looking at that vista, you can see where the trees are. You can see where the, the tree lines end, and you can see the, the, the shape of the hills and the slopes of the valleys. And you can, you can, uh, you know, you can see that. And that information is visible to, to the eye, but when you take a picture of it, it becomes so small and so far away that it becomes almost invisible. And so that's, that's one of the important aspects of why I continue to hold, hold on to my sketchbook and when I make a, if I look at a landscape and I said I want to paint this, I'll sketch it out and I'll draw where those tree lines are and where that information is, you know, farther, you know, that you can't get in a picture. And drawing machinery is the same way, like uh, on a tractor or something. You can take photographs of the tractor, and you'll have all the all the detail. You, you might think you'll have all the detail in that photograph. But when you look at it, oftentimes in the shadows or in other areas um, that are kind of more obscured by the light, you can't tell what's there. And if you paint that blank without actually putting the detail in it, it doesn't look right. So the... It may be dark, it may be obscured, but, you know, those details have to be in there, at least suggested. Otherwise, it just looks like a blank space and that uh, the work is look, looks unfinished. So it's kind of like giving giving the painting depth. Would, would that be the correct? Yeah, it, it, gives it, it does give it depth, but it's necessary. It's actually necessary. Um, it's a necessary aspect of it. It's kind of like, um, well, one of the things, I was listening to an interview with uh, Andrew Wyatt, once, so the great American painter and photographer, one of the most famous American painters. And he said, you don't have to paint every blade of grass. And I thought that was funny because he did paint every blade of grass. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, it's like when, you, when you're putting in, say, a foreground and there is grass, I do paint the blades of grass. I put those in, not because I want to, but because I have to. If you don't do it, it just looks like kind of a it just blo- it looks blocked or unfinished, and it's just not part of. It doesn't match with the rest of the painting, and so based on the details that I've got in the background, the details have to match in the foreground, and as part of the painting process, sometimes my you know my day is uh, not very exciting. It's just kind of drudgery of just putting in those details. So your your paintings are the combination of the two D picture and your three D eye. And you get your mm-hmm. your painting from your what you're drawing are, are all those three D details that cannot be captured from the two D picture that you've taken. Correct. Yes. And that's yeah. where the real talent comes Absolute. in. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Yes. See me. I'm just the two D person. Okay. No, actually, I'm a one D person. Okay. What? <laughs> kind of like the one bar rapper thing. You know, I can only go so far with it. But then that's why I'm not an artist, not in that regard. But you can appreciate what Anthony does absolutely as a matter of fact i'm one of those viewers that will stand in front of a painting and just really you know like cock my eye and cock my head and look this way and look that way i like to find the obscure parts of a painting because it does show me that that artist has really dug into that particular scene or like you said that blade of grass and believe it or not a blade of grass can (laughs) can really be very very interesting when it is done correctly yeah, I mean, there's, and especially living in Kansas, I mean, I, um, in a painted prairie, I mean, there's, there's a, oh, I mean, eight or nine different native species that just grow in those Flint Hills, and it's some of the, uh, it's some of the last remaining uh, native grasses that are still, you know, that are still growing. 
and still thriving. And there's what, what oh, you know, like I said, you know, five or six different species, and each one is very unique and very different in itself. And so, and I've learned not only learned the names of the grasses, but when I'm painting them, I'll often pay attention uh, to paint that particular you know, type of grass, whether it's the blue stem or or the uh, Indian feather grass or switch, or the softness of the uh, side oats. And there's, I mean, there's so many, and each one of them is very different. And so, you know, I, you know, I go out of my way to paint those as well. And of course, then you have the foxtail, which is an invasive weed, but it still is interesting to look at and still has its beauty. And I, I, looking at your your murals right now, and the extent to which many times, if you're just looking at it for one time. If you go to Topeka, where some of these are, or Joplin or Kansas City, uh, and, and viewing them, you might not take in all of the details or all of the events that are going on. Like I just noticed now, I'm looking at the one, the History of St. Joe, which is up in St. Joseph, Missouri, that at the end of the building, on the far left side, there are three guys way at the end. I never noticed that, and I haven't blown this mm-hmm. up, but... Many times you don't you have to see art over and over again, or just stand there and and take it all in, as Ellie was talking about, to really get exactly what you're trying to capture in 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 the painting itself. I wanted to get into the murals. What was the first one that you did? You know, we've we've got about three minutes till our break here, and I'd like to finish this up uh, on the other side of the break if you have time. Is that okay, Anthony? Sure, that's fine. Um, yeah, it's an interesting story. Because my grandfather was a famous muralist, and and so basically there was a I painted those St. Joseph murals, the history of St. Joe for a, for a casino. Uh, they contacted me and just assumed that uh, because I was a Benton that I knew how to paint murals. I'd never done anything. I'd never painted murals before. Never done anything larger than a you know a three by four foot uh, canvas. So I bluffed and said, yes, sure, no problem, I can do it. <laughs> and I got involved with the project having really no experience and really no idea of even uh, where to start or how to begin. <clears throat> and so that was my, th- those panels ended up being uh, five panels, uh, two of them at 24 feet long, two of them at 16 feet long by six feet high, and then another 16-footer of the Pony Express um, that I did. Uh, but those are the first ones. And uh, like I said, I could, I could describe uh, that process and what led to it and what led to the, the process of, that has led to my, you know, the technique I use now for all my murals. Yeah, that, w- that would be great. We've got, about, we've got about a, a minute left here. Uh, so folks, if you want to take a look at his work, it's, it's Anthony Benton Good. Dot com. So it's A-N-T-H-O-N-Y-B-E-N-T-O-N-G-U-D-E dot com. Good is spelled G-U-D-E. So AnthonyBentonGood.com. Some unbelievable kinds of works on his uh, murals, also on some of his artwork. Another question I have, Anthony, is about which uh, medium you like uh, or which uh, kind of paint do you like? Do you like watercolor better? Do you like oils better? I know they they each have their pros and cons, but some some artists they have a, a favorite. But looking at your your murals, man, those those they're just so vibrant, especially the Kansas City uh, Union Station one where the trains are just lined up there waiting to go out. They look like they're they're ready to uh, to to travel. And the the different towns, the the Joplin scenes, the ones down in Neosho, 
unbelievable kinds of works. So, folks, stay tuned. We're talking to Anthony Good, artist who's uh, very famous in his own right, but also has a very famous grandfather. So this is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton of Intune. You're listening to KWRH LP 92.9 FM, your community radio station in Webster Groves, Missouri. Welcome back to Intune. This is Arnold Stricker with Ellie Wharton. We are having a conversation with Anthony Benton Good, who lives in Massachusetts, has a farm out in Kansas, and does some wonderful paintings and commissioned that he's done for Topeka and Kansas City. And these murals are, they're not small, 6 by 16 feet, 6 by 24 feet. And you were talking in the first half hour, Anthony, about uh, you had never done a mural before, and you took it on, and you went to St. Joe and completed those murals. Can you talk more about that process and how you get these murals, what your thoughts are when you try to put something down? Are you talking to the people who you are being commissioned by? How does how does this all happen? Yeah, well, well, like I like I was saying, I you know I was offered the uh, the opportunity to paint these mills. They wanted the history of St. Joe, and it was going to be for a casino that they were building out there. Uh, the trouble was uh, there was no building, there was no walls to paint the mural on, which is traditionally how murals are generally done. Is you've got the walls and you've got the wall space and. Uh, the artist goes to that wall and prepares the wall and then uh, executes the mural on the wall. I had no walls to paint on. It was just um, it was just a plan on paper, and they wanted these murals to be ready and be you know be done when the when the building opened, uh, which you know really gave gave me one well, not a lot of time. It was within a year uh, to paint all these. Yeah, I mean, those are pretty big spaces, and of course, I'd never painted anything larger than a three-foot-by-four-foot uh, canvas. And the problem of having no walls to paint on, I had to come up with, an, uh, with a method to get the murals done and store them. And so that's, that's how I you know, came up with the idea of painting them on canvas, uh, but creating a, a very strong but lightweight uh, panel that was thin that the canvas could be mounted on and then the cans could be, you know, finished, taken off, rolled up, and that that uh, support structure underneath could also be taken apart and then reassembled um, and and moved. So I had a six foot by twenty four foot panel that was that I created with uh, cross bracing and plywood, and uh, kind of cut it and kind of glued it and screwed it back together. So it's thin. It's only about an inch and about two inches wide, and very strong. Um, with the, uh, the kind of a cross brace system in the back, and so it could hold. It wouldn't sag. You could hold it on either end, and it wouldn't sag at all, you know, from the metal. And then I put a skin of quarter inch plywood on the top of that. So those pieces, once they were, once they were screwed down, the canvas could be laid off at the top of that. I painted the mural, um, you know, then popped the staples, rolled it up, you know, disassembled. Um, the entire panel, you know, everything was marked like a giant puzzle, so it would go back together the exact same way. And I stored it in a warehouse until the casino was um, finished, and then installed the finished works. You know, brought them in, rolled them out, reassembled the whole mural, and just basically put the hooks on the walls and hung, we hung it up. That's crazy. And uh, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, that, that's the that's the system that I that I was using, and so it was great because it. One, it allowed me to do the murals in the in my studio. Right. 
instead of on the site. And so I didn't have to commute and didn't have to go around. And so all these murals, because uh, from Kansas, it's a two-hour two drive from my studio to uh, St. Joe. At one point, my kids were, were uh, in school, and I had to do some traveling back and forth from Massachusetts to Kansas anyway. And I had to be on the East Coast for a while. So uh, I couldn't stop the painting. I had to get these murals done. I actually painted one while I was on the East Coast as well and then uh, shipped it shipped it back <laughs> to St. Joe. Wow. And it worked fine. It just, you know, boxed the whole thing back up, and uh, it wasn't a very large box and just went ground freight. So it, didn't, it wasn't even that expensive. How do you decide what you're going to put in the mural? Like I'm looking at the one right now, Union Station, it's going to be trains. Well, I'm looking at the one called Magic of Reading. Yes, I, I see that one too. That one is Frankfurt. incredible. Yes, Frankfurt, How do you Kansas. decide what to put in these? Um, that was a fun, uh, that was a fun uh, fun mural to do, and that's actually the last one I that I've done to date so far. I've done about oh I don't know probably over a dozen of them. Now uh, that one we I did for the um, was commissioned by a good friend of mine who uh, recently passed away. She was very old and she lived in the area all her life, and she thought that the, that the, that the public library there should have one of my murals, and so she commissioned me to paint it, and. Of course, the, with the, I chose that. I'd, I'd, I'd done actually the sketches for the for the idea of that that particular mural many years ago um, in a comp- mural competition that I was not selected for for a, a public library as well. And I thought, what, wouldn't it be a fun thing to do? You could include so many different animals and creatures, and you really use your imagination in a way that. Um, like say for a historical mirror, you just can't do, and so that's that. That's where that one came from. Is so it, he had you know whales in the sky and giant squid and dinosaurs and prehistoric animals and as well as um, fantastical creatures or mythical creatures as well. And so it was a lot of fun to do that. It looks a lot of fun. As a matter of fact, just just sitting here and looking at it. It takes my imagination because you're looking at the plains of Kansas. You're looking at, like you said, dinosaurs. You're looking at mountains. You're looking at whales and porpoises underneath the ocean. You see sunflowers and chickens and just, you know, but again, it's all mm-hmm. this child laying on it, on his back, her back, with her head propped up against a haystack, book bag to the side, and reading and it's all that imagination that is just so wild and beautiful. That was a lot of fun to do, that mural. Um, some of the other murals, of course, a lot of them are historically or his, are history-based. And so right. the people and uh, the imagery is based on the history of, of you know, the area that, I was, that was chosen to, to do that mural. So the, uh, like the Joplin mural. That was Route 66. That was, and that actually, that mural was an interesting one. It, it hangs one, next to my uh, one of my grandfather's murals in in City Hall, called oh, Joplin cool. in the turn of the century. And so he did that mural um, towards the end of his life. And in fact, I actually, as a young boy, posed for one of the figures in that mural when he painted it, and, and uh, was out there. I watched him paint it and complete it in his studio in Kansas City. And so I had the honor to you know, create one of my own murals, which now hangs next to his, which was quite an honor. That is, but that, that's neat. That Route 66 mural, boy, that was a bear of paint. I, I swear, it, it's, a, it's a 14-foot mural, uh, which is not tremendously large, but still a pretty good-sized piece of work. And because of all the, the, uh, 
the detail I had to use painting those buildings, which uh, were basically taken from the city of Joplin. I had a 14-foot mural. I think I painted the whole thing with a half-inch brush. Oh, oh my. my. <laughs> and then, you know, the thing that's interesting about that one, as you look in the distance, you see where Joplin ends, and then it goes just basically into the prairie. It goes not only into the prairie, but into the desert southwest, which is, of course, uh, what the Route 66 was famous for. And That's it went right. Through Joplin started in Chicago, went through Joplin, Missouri, and then, of course, you can hear about the the songs and um, a lot of the places it was um, that went, which was through New Mexico, Arizona, you know, and then all the way into uh, Southern California. Right. When when I was young, my parents and I traveled all the way from St. Louis to San Francisco via Route 66. And at that time, we only had the two-lane roads, of course. So it was, I mean, so many interesting towns going, you know, that the freeway system just doesn't allow you to see and celebrate anymore. Right, yeah, now it's I-40, which, uh, you know, just, just goes just a straight shot and goes, it bypasses all the towns and, you know, get to see those things. But it's still an interesting road and an interesting trip. To make I, even on my even on my forty, I like to make that trip. Do you like oil better than watercolor, or have a preference for one or the other, or what are your thoughts on that? It depends on what I'm painting. Um, I, I do prefer. Um, I don't really have a preference. I love to paint in oil. I, I prefer oils over acrylics any day. The acrylics are um, always never. I never enjoyed working with acrylic paint, but uh, always enjoyed working with oils. And then if I'm doing a watercolor. Of course, you know, I'm using the watercolors, and I enjoy painting the water with watercolors. There's some the fluidity of it um, kind of just lends itself, mm-hmm. but it's a whole different process. I uh, kind of, you have to, I mean, my watercolors are considered very tight, to use the uh, uh, school term of what you're not supposed to be when you're painting a picture. You want to be loose, um, but I, my watercolors are, are extremely planned out and each stroke is you know has to be just right and um one slip one mistake and the hit goes in the trash it just you know there's no there's no salvaging it whereas with oil paints you can um you can layer you can cover things up you can repaint you can do a lot you have a lot more freedom i love the one tipton ford train wreck um, Neosha, Missouri, because it, it shows a dynamic of this train wreck and the mem- the memorial that was set up for it. But again, you see that on one side of the memorial are the white families. On the other side mm-hmm. are the black families. But then you see the souls of all the people and they are all the same. I thought that was yeah. that was magnificent. Yeah. I did that mural um, that was for the uh, Methodist Church in in uh, Neosha, Missouri, which is actually my granddad's uh, hometown, where he was from, where he was born. And that particular tragedy was very interesting because um, it happened at a time when, of course, the you know Southern Missouri was very segregated, as well as the, was the whole country was very segregated. And that train wreck that uh, took place there brought the black community and the white community together to grieve because they couldn't tell there was this horrific uh, train wreck from a, with a gas engine in it. And the, um, all the people that were um, 
consumed in the fire were so badly burned that they couldn't tell who was who. Mm. And so they were all, all, all buried in a mass grave together. Mm. And so the, the, the white um, people that were, were buried were buried along with the black people, which just wasn't done in those days. Exactly. And so the black and white community came together in a you know, very short time during, the, um, during a period of our own history, which was, of course, as we all, all know, very segregated. And so I was commissioned to, to commemorate that and to, um, to create a mural to uh, commemorate the unity uh, of the tragedy, not the tragedy itself. And yet I realized I couldn't. Uh, when it was proposed, one of the board members who was proposing the mural said, we're not going to be painting the picture of a train wreck. And... I had to get up and say, actually, that's not quite correct. We are, I am going to be painting the train wreck. I said, otherwise, um, the story can't be told. I right. have to, I have to include that. Right. I exactly. I have to include the train. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense in terms of what the, what the rest of the, the story is. And to see the souls helping each other up, you know, hand in hand, that type of thing, again, really portrays the the very difference of the culture at that time and it says a lot that you know when we transition there is no Mm -hmm. color you know and i think you did a tremendous job of showing that that in death guess what everybody is equal well this is the thing i love about art is that you can communicate so much visually that you really can't express in speech and you can talk until the cows come home but this this really speaks volumes without even saying a word. And yeah. that's very, very, very good, Anthony. Yeah, and brings us back, like you said, to the, the actual train wreck itself, because I, I wasn't familiar with that story. But the fact that in the background is this burning train, and you said that everybody on it was burned beyond recognition. Again, it's, it's kind of sad to think that there had to be that kind of tragedy to bring both sides together. And a story uh, that I was not aware of and that I will look up a little bit. Me too. Yeah, Absolutely. We'll check it out. Me too. What What are a couple stories that you remember about your grandfather? Um, oh, he was, um, <clears throat> I mean, he had great work, work ethic. Uh, he was a very, very pro, uh, prolific artist, you know, completing literally um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of paintings uh, throughout his lifetime. Even at the end of his life, when I knew him, he was in his 80s, he'd get up at five. He'd have a little breakfast and a little coffee, and he'd go up to his studio, and he'd work. And he'd come back down, maybe for a little break, um, mid-morning, and get something to eat, maybe a little brunch or something, and he'd go back to work. And then he'd come back down kind of uh, early afternoon, and he'd take a little rest. And then he'd go back up, and he'd work until 5, and then he'd come back down and have his bourbon. <laughs> drink wow. at the end of the day. What a schedule. And that was a schedule. <laughs> yeah. He he worked he worked pretty much every day. There was a, I I'm you know and if he wasn't working on that he was working on uh, some of his other projects that he had going around his properties, you know taking care of things. But he always put that time in the studio. And um, I was when I was young I'd like to go up there and watch him. And he just uh, he was always just quietly working working away. He did he was famous for using clay models as well. And the clay models that he made were amazing, actually amazing sculptures they are, they in themselves. Are. And he would he would do a whole clay model of, of a 
of, of a mural that he was doing, and everything was not only sculpted in clay, but then he painted. And he'd have the color, his color pattern all laid out on those clay models. And uh, sadly, when he was done, because he used an oil clay, which is soft clay that doesn't harden, he would basically just ball the whole thing back up so he could reuse the clay. But the the amount of work that went into those uh, clay models was you know, quite extensive and and quite interesting. A lot of people say, well, maybe that's why some of his figures or some of his, uh, his paintings kind of look like they are made of clay, because he was actually painting them from the clay, which I agree to some extent about that. Um, but well, he did it so he could light them, and then he could get the shadows that he wanted exact on, on what he did. And, and he painted these, uh, he created these unbelievable, you know, dioramas of the figures and the landscape. And then, he, you know, he painted, he get the shadows right, he gets the color scheme in. And oftentimes he would, he would do a, maybe a small work, and then he'd do a little bit larger of the same, same scene, and then maybe a final finished piece, which is even larger. So he'd have maybe two or three paintings of the same scene of different sizes before he was finished and, you know, but he got what he wanted and, and uh, did that. And so, so to, to create that many works, um, I mean, just his work ethic was just amazing in terms of he just, he just would just not stop, just constantly painting, constantly working. And a wonderful person to be around, too. Um, I enjoyed him a lot as, as a child. He would make us laugh and tell stories, and, you know, at the end of the day, and was also very encouraging of, of uh, uh, to me in terms of my drawing and, and my you know attempt at, at painting even at an early age. Anthony, I would ask you, what would you say to a youngster or a teenager who's who's got that art talent, who's got that drive and just that that desire to draw and exhibit some work and and really let out what emotion they have onto a canvas or onto a, a media board or however they want to do that in, in whatever medium. What what suggestions and what encouragement would you give them? Um, well, one, I would say um, uh, make, make sure you've got a strong family support system because <laughs> when no matter who you are or what your background is, um, getting started is probably the hardest part and getting established is, is, is very difficult. And so you're not going to be making a lot of money. At it. Don't try and don't quit your day job. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and, uh, hopefully, uh, your mom and dad wouldn't mind you, uh, still living at home for a while. because It's, a, it's a difficult, difficult, uh, business to kind of get into and be successful at. Um, the other thing is you can't paint for a market. If you try to paint for a market, um, generally you, you just you, you you you'll probably fail. You really do have to paint from your heart, um, from your soul, what you want, what you how you see the world, what you want to say, and what you know, what you want the story that you want to tell. Is is you'll be more successful trying to, trying to express that than trying to express something that you think might sell or somebody might want to buy. Anthony, what would you say was the turning point for you? And, you know, and, you know, when you kind of turn the corner from, oh, boy, I I need that second job to, 
you know, I'm getting there. I'm really getting where I want to be in my career. What was that turning point for you? Well, it's, it's, it's still a process and it's still ongoing. Um, I was lucky enough that, um, you know, I struggled for the, for probably about five years. It took a long time to even find a gallery. Um, I finally had a gallery that picked me up in Kansas city and I had a one man show and sold out, um, on my first show. So that, you know, that kind of put me on the map as an artist who was, uh, definitely, um, serious and, and someone who could be collected. And then with the, um, the business community also liked collecting my works, which showed that, um, if, you know, if you've got the business community wanting to buy your stuff or collect your pieces, it shows a faith that they believe that these pieces will be, will have more value, uh, you know, as time goes on, and which they have. But I swear, after the, uh, after the Great Recession, um, we really did lose the middle class, and the middle class used to be my uh, bread and butter. Um, and right now, there is no middle class that can afford art. There's no more disposable income in that regard. And so it's probably harder now than it was back in the 90s. Back in the 90s, I was, I was painting and doing very well uh, and selling a lot of paintings. Um, today, a different story. Uh, it's a lot harder to, uh, to keep things going. So I'm using, oh, basically, if I was to advise another artist, the, uh, it's all about inventory, and the more you have out there, the better chances that one one or more painting will sell, and so that kind of, that kind of keeps things going. Anthony Benton Good, we appreciate you being on the show today. Uh, folks, if you want to check his work out, please do so. It's uh, www.anthony, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y, Benton, B-E-N-T-O-N, Good, G-U-D-E, dot com, anthonybentongood.com. Anthony, great talking to you. Let's do this again. I've still got a whole bunch of questions to go through and uh, just scratching the surface of getting to know you and your work. And uh, you do some unbelievable work, sir. And I, I greatly appreciate you taking time today to talk to us. Truly unbelievable. Well, well, thank you. Thank you very much. Take care, Anthony. We'll be talking to you in the future. Okay. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye now.